Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? I'm your host, Andrew Horn, and today's guest is Annie Lala. And Annie is one of the top relationship experts and coaches on the planet. I am very fortunate to have called her my relationship coach through my 11-year marriage, my recent divorce, and now with my new partner, Melissa. She is truly world-class at helping people to work through really difficult challenges, conflict in their relationships. She's a master at the technical and the practical, what are the rituals, the communication techniques that help people to stay in love and to cultivate inspiring partnerships. And she's also just brilliant. She's able to talk about the esoteric and the mental models of love and relationship with a fluidity and mastery that is just interesting and deeply inspiring. She is one of my favorite people on the planet. She's a genius when it comes to creating an inspiring, love-filled relationship. So whether you are already in the relationship of your dreams or you want to build one in the future, listen up. Annie Lala, what's the big idea? Here we go. And welcome back to What's the Big Idea? I'm here with the one and only Annie Lala, the cartographer of love. Thank you for joining What's the Big Idea? Yay! I'm so excited <laughs> to be here. Let's. <laughs> we got it this time. We got it this time. I believe in us. Um, so, Annie, before we started the podcast, I always like to talk to my guests and tell them why I wanted them on the show. And with you, is that I wanted to have you on the show because I think you're the best relationship coach on the planet. And you don't call yourself a relationship coach, you call yourself a love coach. And so, for today, what I'm hoping we can cover is what are the most important tools and techniques that someone can use to create a healthy and inspiring relationship? Are you up to the task? Oh yeah, this is my favorite topic. I got tools coming out the yin yang. So let's go, let's go as fast as we can. Okay, so let's, let's do this thing. And so I just wanna start by asking you the question, when did you first believe that you were really, really good at this? What was the moment where you knew that you were world-class at what you do? Oh, it's a story, but okay, I'll do it quickly. Okay, basically, so I'm a well, love a moment, coach. A moment can have a story, I want it. Okay, so I, I was a love coach, I was coaching, I was making money, I thought I was pretty good, but I was also dating a psychotherapist at the time, this is before I met my husband, and he was like from Columbia University, like a real therapist. And so I always felt like a quack around all his friends and him and, you know, whatever. So there was a psychotherapy conference going on, a Milton Erickson Foundation. And I pretended I was a therapist and like signed up for it. And I go to this therapy conference and I'm listening to all these therapies talk and do lectures and I'm listening and taking notes. But then I heard one leader speak to the audience and he just leans out and he goes, you know what? The most important part of helping another human is not how much you know or what your tools or techniques are. It's whether you can open your heart to the client and have them feel your love and witness them in their pain. And when I heard that, I was like, I can do that. I totally can do that. And so that inspired me. But in the same conference, there was the grand master of psychotherapy. His name's Otto Kernberg. 
if anyone knows him, he's like written a lot of textbooks and everyone was like, oh, Grand, Grand Poobah. And so he was saying, okay, any therapists have really difficult cases that you want to bring and we're going to broadcast, video them, and I will help you as your supervisor. So a few people put their hands up, not many, two others and me. And I'm like, my case, because I had this case with a client. He was a really complex client. He was 40 years old. He was a virgin. He had a foot fetish, so he wasn't into women. Like he wasn't into women's sexuality. He just liked their feet. And so every girl that he dated would just want to have sex. And he's like, oh, it's all about the feet. It was really bizarre. But I, I had ideas about how I was going to work with this guy and help him transcend his shame and like love on him. And what was amazing is this guy was a therapist himself and he was coming to me. And so I tried different things with him, but I wanted to check with Otto Kernberg. So I show up the next morning, all ready to do the video. And he works with the other two therapists. And he like, as they're telling about their case, he's like laying into them. Well, why did you do that? Well, why didn't you try this? And he had this kind of like judgment about them. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die when I go up there and try to bamboozle him and have him think I'm a real therapist. So I go up and I'm like, okay. And he goes, tell me about the situation. So I describe it and this man and his sexuality and that he's a virgin. And then I, he goes, and what was your diagnosis? And I was like, oh, shit, I don't have a diagnosis. So I just kind of skirted that and described what I thought the problem was. was grip, cra- he, had, he was grappling with deep, deep shame around tra- um, traditional sexuality, which had been marginalized in his very Catholic upbringing. So the only place he could put his sexuality was into his feet because that, that, there was no you know, um, taboo against that. So he channeled all his sexuality to his feet and into women's feet. I mean, this was to the point where he couldn't even look at yoga sites websites because of women's feet. Like it was a real thing. So I told him what I thought the situation was and all the different things I tried. And Otto Kernberg just listened rapt and he took notes and he was just like, I heard him say, excellent. And what made you do that? Excellent. Now I was doing stuff, anything I could think of because I'm not a therapist who could lose my license. I'm like some quack who's like, whatever it takes, I'm going to help this guy. I mean, I took him to clubs and taught him how to talk to women. I hired a surrogate to be the first girl that he lost his virginity to and told her how he had a foot fetish so that she could use her feet and enroll him in the process. Like I just did whatever I could to help this guy. And Otto was just like impressed with me. And then at the end, he took me aside and he gave me his number and he said, if you ever need any support or supervision, call me. And after that, Mr. Grand Poobah of therapy thought I was badass. I was like, I got this. I got this. And so from then on, I never questioned it again. Perfect. Well, and before I get into like some of the techniques and the tools of which I'm the beneficiary of, let's start by creating kind of a foundation of understanding for some of these terms. And so we, we, we call you a cartographer of love, but what is love in your system of belief? Yeah. You know, everyone always goes, what's a cartographer? But we'll get to that. Cartographer is basically a map maker. So I see myself yeah. as mapping the very complex esoteric terrain between two human hearts. So what is love? Now, my husband, who I'm in love with and who you know, he is always telling me how I must never have just one definition. I need seven definitions minimum to understand an idea or a concept. So you can see multiple facets like a diamond. And so I collect definitions of love. You know, love is... Um, there's so many ways to look at it, but the, the, gosh, it's so big. I don't even know where to start with my definitions. I'll start with my favorite quote about love, which comes from John Perry Barlow, late John Perry Barlow. He says, 
The difference between love and true love is the difference between a very large number and infinity. Hmm. And Hmm. so to say I love another human being is to say I'm willing to do whatever it takes to infinity. And this brings me to the other idea of seeing love as the complex collection of all human emotions. So if you see love as the white light of human emotion, when you take white light and you shine it into a glass prism, you get the spectrum of the rainbow. It breaks out. When you shine love through a human heart, it breaks out into the spectrum of all human emotions. And that means that when you say I love you, what you're saying is I'm willing to feel anger, jealousy, rage, joy, excitement, confusion. I'm willing to feel whatever it takes to be in this relationship with you. And most people think love is, oh, happy, joy, let's just be sexy and connected. And no, love is being um, being willing to feel the whole spectrum. And hmm. I often tell my clients, like, you know, you're feeling angry, upset, jealous right now. Guess what? This is what love looks like. This is what love feels like. This, not some fantasy dream you have in your mind. It's, you know, you avoiding on co- eye contact with your partner on a Wednesday afternoon in the kitchen because you're pissed. This is what love looks like today, right now. And so it's just shifting what people think love is to realizing that it's a very complex space and keeping the bar lower. It's not like love has to be some big demanding high standard thing. It's you being willing to do whatever it takes to make this relationship work. Yeah. And so with that definition of being willing to experience everything, before we even get into some of the the techniques and the tools and the callbacks, like this is what love looks like, which I love and I want to circle back on. I'm curious, how does someone know that this is the person that they are willing to feel everything for? What are, what are the, what is, what is the most effective way for someone to make that decision that this is the person who I'm willing to experience it all for? Well, the short answer is you can't leave. You literally can't leave. Let me tell you, love is hard. It's not easy. It's a gladiator sport. My husband says it doesn't take a lot to be in love. It takes everything. And so being in a relationship (laughs) takes you to the edge of all of your darkness and all of your shadow. And I don't trust a relationship that hasn't been to the edge of annihilation and back. I trust that one. And so um, the way... I would encourage someone to inquire whether this this is the person for you is to just notice um, you may threaten or think, why am I here? But if you actually can't leave, no matter how difficult it gets, there's some part of you that you have to check. Is there some part of you that sees a possibility and sees that this partner is the portal, the best portal you found for you to actualize to your greatness? Because you don't fall in love with another person. You fall in love with who you get to be around them, through them, in their company. You fall in love with an opportunity to actualize to your highest potential. And even your partner's crazies, that shit they do do that makes you upset, it forces you to build new muscles, new emotional technology to cope. And if those new muscles make you a more extraordinary version of yourself, then they're they're living into their purpose, right? Your partner's job is to stand for your development and your greatness. Um, Another way to look at it is, is this person a trampoline for your dreams and a sanctuary (laughs) for your heart? A trampoline Um, for your dreams, a sanctuary for your heart. 
I love it. Your your mind, your heart, and your body has to all say, fuck yeah. Because you might have the body going, oh my God, I really find this person sexy. And maybe one other part. But if you don't have all three saying, yes, we choose this one, they're not the one. Um, another question to ask. If you had one last wish and you could use that wish secretly without anyone knowing to have the other person fall more in love with you or more in love with themselves, how would you use the wish if nobody knew? And there is a person that you love so much, you want them to fall more in love with themselves than you. And most parents would know the answer to this is, of course, yes. But you, you're, you're not actually in love with the person and they're not in love with you unless the answer is, I would choose by secret ballot to have the other person fall more in love with themselves. So your commitment is to the actualization and growth of the other person. And the interaction with this person, more often than not, should be helping you fall more in love with yourself. Like, I fell more in love with myself around my husband than any other man I'd met. Now, there's lots of times where I don't feel in love with myself, where he drives me batshit crazy and I hate how I'm showing up. But more often than not, he brings out the best in me. He stands for my greatness and I'm capable of way more things with him at my side. Beautiful. I love that answer. And from that place, I think I'm going to open up the playing field to explore a little bit, which is if you are coming into a new relationship, so for our exploration today, I'm going to imagine a little thought experiment, Yeah. which is you have two people who come together and from day one, both of these individuals are crazy about the other one and they're ready to dive in. So both yeah. parties are committed to the relationship and they're like, we're going to do this long run, family, pursue our dreams, do it all together for that couple what are the systems or things that they can put in place to ensure that for the long run, they're going to stay in love. They're going to have great sex. They're going to enjoy the shit out of their lives. What are the things step-by-step that you would encourage that couple to do to build the foundation for an incredible partnership? Become a student of the cutting edge technologies on how to resolve conflict how to collaborate, how to stand for another person's growth by holding them to account to their greatness and also loving and honoring them exactly as they are and perfectly. To, to become a student of all of the theories and ideas that we've garnered as a species, like study, read the books, get coaches, take programs. Like we study about everything else, but no one seems to want to study about some people, but it's not required learning. And I don't understand that. (laughs) So let's make, let's make it real for people. So even if you were to start there of what would be on the syllabus for that couple that's starting out, what would be the most important books that they could read? Gosh, well, I've got, you know, my top 10 books. Let's see see if I can try to remember them. So I love Gay and Katie Hendricks, Conscious Loving. That's the Bible. (laughs) They are in love. And, they wrote and, the books together. why? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why they're, that? They're one? in love. So first of all, yeah. any books or any advice you get from anyone around love, you just check, are they in love? And do they have a relationship that you are inspired by and admire and you feel the deep commitment coming from? Because otherwise, 
you're, you know, you don't go to your mechanic to help you with your MacBook Pro. You don't go to a person who's in bankruptcy to help you financially. You want to make sure that they're living a life that you want to role model. So Gay and Katie Hendricks, being through the ringer, they've been through all kinds of experiences. They love each other. They've stayed together. They teach together. They've honed um, the, the tools and technology they developed as relationship coaches into this book. And it's, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's an older book, Conscious Loving, but I think it's, it's one of the best books you can read together with your partner that bankrupts. If you read it, it will bankrupt slowly but surely all your technologies for avoiding intimacy and closing your heart to yourself or the other when it most needs to open for intimacy to happen. So they, they walk you through those maps. That's a great book. Um, um, Getting the Love You Want by the other Hendricks, Harville Hendricks and his wife. That's a great map, really understanding how to attune to your own needs and your partner's needs. I mean, he's a very analytic thinker, so that there's a lot of algorithms in there. Um, gosh, I could probably give you a list. They're all here on my shelf. Oh, Passionate Marriage. Passionate Marriage by Snark. S-N-A-R-C-H. It's called Passionate Marriage, but it's really about relationships. One thing I learned from him that changed my, like really blew open my models is to be in love is to be equally in equal amounts together and apart. So a relationship is a living entity and it lives and it breathes. And when you're connected in communion together, you breathe in. And when the relationship is separate, autonomous, individuated, when you're doing your own thing, the relationship breathes out. And like any living creature, the in-breath is just as important as the out-breath. And so connection and communion is just as important for separation, individuation, autonomy. Together and separate are equal. Now, I think before that book, I was like, together. Love is about together. And my husband was like, love is about apart. I love you. Go away. Give me some space. And so now when I realized it's equal amounts of both, I was like, oh, that's why every successful relationship that I've noticed has one partner guarding the sacred polarity of communion together, connectedness, one partner that's guarding the sacred polarity of separateness, autonomy, individuation, sovereignty. And you come together to cross-train so that if and when you have a child, that child gets a holographic representation of healthy muscles in both. Okay, so you, you started with those three books. You have 10. I'll link them in the show notes. I'll get them from sure. you afterwards Perfect. so that we actually have your list, which is amazing. And you started with, so even there are three things of conflict resolution, collaboration, and being a stand for their growth. And so if you were to start right there with how to create conscious conflict, to approach those tense conversations constructively, where do we start? First, we have to start with Get out, get the idea out of your head that a lot of conflict or we're fighting means we're not right for each other. The most powerful relationships I know fought like banshees the first, you know, nine to 18 months sometimes. So that's like thinking. So to me, conflict is like when you go to the gym and you rip your muscle a little bit, a tiny bit, it grows back stronger. That's why you use the weightlifting machine or the barbells. Conflict is when the relationship rips the muscle of the heart of the relationship a little bit, but then it grows back stronger. If you know how to talk through the conflict, the conflict is a collaboration trying to happen. A conflict is two different perspectives, two different values, two different realities, trying to find a way to tessellate. And they're getting stymied. They're getting stuck. They don't know how to do it. And what turns a collaboration into a conflict 
is when one partner either collapses or coerces. And mm. usually one partner does one of each. So the coercer is the one that uses pressure, manipulation, intimidation, um, punishes, withholds love, intimidates to try and get the other person to give them what they want. That's the coercion. And then the collapser is the one that goes, okay, fine, yeah, 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 let's go there for dinner. But that's not what they want. And mm. they abdicate from their needs. They say yes when they may no. Now, in our culture, we have the coercer is bad and the collapser, the poor little victim. From a love coach, they're equally compromising the health of the relationship. Both of them are like termites eroding the foundation of the connection. So I don't have one is better than the other, whichever you are, if you collapse or you coerce. Passive aggressives, also part of coercion. Those are ways that you basically leave the us and go into, I'm going to get what I want. Or... I'm going to give up what I want. Remember, having your separate individual wants and needs, individuation is just as important as communion. And if you keep giving up your needs and wants, your relationship won't last and it won't thrive. So mm. both are damaging. And so for conflict, first of all, you want to start with conf having conflict isn't bad. It's an opportunity to understand each other better. And what I've noticed with every conflict is most people see conflict as I'm holding my sword and I'm going to fight you. And there's going to be a winner and a loser in this duel. But I see conflict as two people linked arm in arm facing a third entity that they're fighting. And that third entity is a misunderstanding. So I've noticed that every relationship conflict distills down underneath to some form of, I don't feel seen, heard, understood, respected, some aspect of, I don't feel loved. So whether it's the cap on the toothpaste or you left the front door open or you're mean to my mom at Thanksgiving, whatever the thing is the person's complaining about, it's actually some form of misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding is always some aspect of I don't feel loved right now. So just knowing that the way you approach conflict is like instead of, oh, I need to get them to believe my perspective or I need to change their mind, it's we love each other. Our love is bigger than any issue we're working through. So how can I find their, their value set, their reality, their perspective and link with it and say, hey, there's something else that's hurting our connection and it's called a misunderstanding and let's figure it out together. Let's work together to explore that. So let's see. So conf conflict is healthy. Conflict is an important way of to understand each other and to hone each other into higher developed versions of ourselves. Um. What about communication styles? Because this is something that you helped me and Mickey with so much during our time is actually on communication styles. And so I'm curious when it comes to how we are expressing ourselves, especially in those moments of tension and conflict, what is kind of your foundational advice and what are some of the things that people can apply or hold themselves and others accountable to in those tense moments to stay connected? Well, first, in a tense moment indicates that you're probably dysregulated, angry, scared, frazzled, overwhelmed, upset, something. So the minute I see one partner dysregulated, my first go-to move is to help them feel safe and calm and help regulate their nervous system and teach them how to do that. Because no effective communication is going to be happening when they're in amygdala hijack and talking from their inner lizard on survival. So the first thing I do is like help educate the system to get regulated. Once they're sufficiently regulated, they don't have to be zero, but like under five out of 10, 
Um, then I like to remind both partners that they're in love, that their love is bigger than this issue, and that it's stronger than any conflict, just to, to let them know that I'm tracking their relationship and I'm standing for it. And then I might encourage them to look for any shame, blame, or make wrong in their voice. And I let them know that whenever someone's aggressive or shaming or blaming, it usually indicates there's some pain or hurt lurking behind the protective anger because anger is always a protection for something sacred. And usually we cover our sacred underbelly, our scared, hurt vulnerability. And so I invite them to see if they can speak from their owie, from their fear, from their insecurity and give them permission and an encouragement to do so. I might inspire them to go from what I call WTF stance, which is like, what the fuck? Whether you say that or not, the vibe is, why did you do that? Like, it's so silly. It's ridiculous. Judgy, blamey, shamey. And see if we can translate that into what I call MLK, which stands for Martin Luther King. (laughs) Martin Luther King, if there was ever a human in the history of the world that had a, a justified reason to be what the fuck, it was him. But he didn't. He didn't say what the fuck. He said, I have a dream. And he enrolled and inspired and motivated an entire nation to follow that dream because he spoke to possibility. And so when you take your grumble that has what the fuck energy and you repackage it in an MLK style, you know, instead of, why haven't you done the dishes? I have a dream in the future of our family. When you see the sink full of dishes, you take the initiative because you love this family to put it into the dishwasher. And so just having the, um, the consciousness to conserve the self-esteem and the dignity of your partner when you're asking them to change. You're already asking them to do something new that's not instinctive. Why would you want to deprive them of their own resources, internal sense of dignity, self-esteem, while you're sending them up Mount Everest to change a behavior, which is probably as difficult as quitting smoking cold turkey? So you want to inspire the other person by saying, I believe in you. I know you're capable of being a contributive member to this family. I know you want the household to hum fluidly. And I see a, a future version of you where you participate in putting the dishes away and, and let's create that together. And how can I support you? It's an inspirational invitation rather than a shaming coercion. And so that's one move you could do to be more effective in your communication Scraping thing, off shame, blame, and make wrong, basically. Let me let me share one that was really helpful for me, yeah. Nikki. It was also about taking a break and celebrating the decision to pause when we weren't regulated. So you talked about regulating our nervous systems. But again, if we go back to that, which is if someone is aware that their nervous system is not regulated and they're communicating unconsciously, violently, whatever it is, that opting to take a break or introducing that intentionally is something that we want to celebrate in the relationship, right? Is not trying to necessarily stay in conversation if it's unproductive, if we're not actually able to be there consciously. Can you say more about kind of having a practice like that in relationship? It's actually a deep form of self-care for each individual and for the relationship itself. Because here's the deal. When two people are heart closed and going unconscious and in a conflict, they're damaging each other's self-esteem they're damaging the relationship itself by the things they say and the accusations. No one's guarding the relationship. This relationship is like a child co-parented by the two people. And 
No one's with the baby. You're both in amygdala hijack. You've regressed to your younger selves. The relationship is sitting there going, is anybody here, any grownups in the room to take care of me? So what I've introduced is this idea called a timeout. Timeout is a courageous act that one partner who's got a little bit of wherewithal in the moment and realizes we're damaging each other's esteem. We're damaging the relationship right now. We're saying stupid shit. I want to protect the relationship. So I'm going to call a timeout, which is a sacred act that indicates that I'm aware that we're not doing anything productive and I want to give space from us to separate so that we can go get some resource, take a drink, go for a walk, get regulated so that we're back in our most grounded, sane perspective, coming back to truth and love, and then we can re- engage in this conversation. And just the ability to say time out, it's not an escape patch. Oh, I can get out of this conversation and I don't have to talk anymore. It's just a pause so that you can get resourced and come back with your cutting edge current self, your adult self. And when I give couples this technology, the first thing I say to them is do not weaponize this. Do not use this to just get away. Use this to protect the relationship. And I would recommend in calling a timeout when you're hitting three, four out of 10 trigger, not when you're at nine. Because by the time you're at nine, the way you're going to say timeout has F you written all over it. So you can't weaponize it. And it's a way to dignify the relationship and each other in how you relate. Yeah. I And one of the things that I found was really helpful with the timeout was in almost timestamping, if it was possible, like when we're going to come back. So providing real clarity of like, I'm going to call a timeout so I can ground and come back to this. Would you be open to coming back in 15 minutes or 20 minutes or tomorrow at the same time? Exactly. Just to like put their mind at ease that we are coming back specifically here. Absolutely. That's, that's great. And the person who calls the timeout usually calls it because they're feeling like they're drowning and they can't cope. And it's, it's correct to stop the dance because it's two kids talking now, not two adults. And they're the person that starts it again. Whoever called the timeout is the one that re-engages when they think the system is healthy enough. Perfect. And so I wanted to add that caveat on there. And then you started talking about removing layers of shame and blame. So I'll let you take it from there. You remember Yeah, in effective communication, if you want to inspire another person into a new behavior, you need to paint an image of their future with their life working better along their values axis. Nobody wants to change for your reasons, but they'll change if it aligns them better to their future successful self. And so when you want to change a behavior in someone else, first of all, I would recommend don't even try that. <laughs> if, if, if When you're in a relationship, you're in a tango. And in a tango, if you change your dance move, they have to change too. And so the best way to change a partner that I've ever found in the history of working with couples and clients and in my own relationship, the fastest way to change your partner is to find the corresponding dance move that you do with their crazy, because you can see their crazy, but you can't see yours. But if you can find the thing you do that dances with their crazy and work on your part, you become more personally developed. You transcend your shadows, you develop new skills, and they will follow in kind. So you get a two for one. You get to upgrade and then they come along for free. If you go to try to change them directly, they may change for a short period of time out of terror or out of threat. 
but they didn't natively change from the inside and you don't get the workout that you needed to build new muscles. So, yeah. And we were talking about shame. I just want to comment about shame. Should, you should. I just want you to notice when you say you should to anyone in the world, including yourself. Should is a could with shame smeared on top. And the minute someone smells shame smeared on anything, a huge internal part of them that refuses to be shamed balks. It goes, I don't want to be dominated. I don't want to be made wrong, even if they don't show it to you. So I don't think shame is the best way to motivate change in another person. I think showing them how a new behavior would actually get them to who they want to be faster and then standing for that behavior is how you get them to change. You, I think there's, there's, so, there's so much to be said there about highlighting the new behavior of actually taking responsibility for articulating what it is that we want. I'm, I'm even curious if you can say more about that and our responsibility in coming out of almost like the victim mindset or just like this relationship is happening to me and really clarifying what the new behavior is that we're trying to elicit in our partner and how to speak to that specifically. Can you say more about yeah. that? Yeah. A lot of times when we've said, oh, I've said this to my partner so many times and they're not doing it. We think they got it because we said it five times. I guarantee you. If your partner isn't doing the thing you most want to feel safe and loved, it's not because they know how to do it and they're going, F you, I can't be bothered. That is never what's happening. It's they can't. It's not that they won't. It's that they can't. And I mean, can't as in they don't actually know how to do it. They get overwhelmed. They lose track. What you have a PhD in and you're really good at, they're in kindergarten paint by numbers. So don't take for granted the thing you're good at they can do. When I've asked my husband, can you just pack this suitcase? Like, uh, cause it's so easy for me to pack a suitcase. And then I come back and I see like hair dryer thrown in, seven things thrown in, nothing else can fit. I'm like, did you never get the, the, the class on how to pack a suitcase? And it really stresses him out. Like I can tell he's just like, I don't know how to do it. It's super easy for me. A lot of places where you're a genius, your partner is not, and they need spelled out paint by number steps to actually do this thing that you can just do intuitively. So wait, we were talking about, um, you'd asked about, remind me what you asked about because I was I went on a- Well, how, how to actually, the importance of addressing specific, you explicitly want. the behavior that you want. Yes. So what we are great at in our romantic relationships is complaining about what we don't want. I hate it when you leave the door open, leave the cap off your toothpaste. And we keep talking about the thing we don't want. And all they go is, okay, I get it. I get it. I get you don't want it. But they don't have another thing to put in place. They need a new thing. You know, if you are trying to remember your new phone number, as soon as you remember the new phone number, it pushes out the old one. You don't have to forget the old one. It gets replaced. It gets supplanted. So you need to give them the new phone number. The way you get someone to replace an old behavior is not by saying, stop doing that. Stop doing that. It's by saying, what I'd love for you to do is when you walk in after a hard day's work, you greet me, you greet the children, you just give us five minutes connection before you go to your office. You tell them what you want. Stop telling them what you don't want. It, it literally draws a blank. They're just like, okay, don't do that. Now, what do I do instead? So answer the question, what should they do instead? Take off the shame blame, take out don'ts and just say, you know, instead of stop running down the hallway, Hey, kids, could you walk slowly down the hallway? Say the exact thing you want and then say it over and over. I call it broken record. I'm a big fan of broken record without escalating. 
will you walk down the hallway slowly? Hey, can you walk down the hallway slowly? Hey, when you walk down the hallway, can you walk slowly? And just say it over like Chinese water torture and eventually they will get it. It's if you escalate, then they go, don't talk to me like that. And they get triggered. Don't, don't fall for that. You want to change? Say it calmly and repeatedly and eventually they will get it. Yeah. So I think that when I think of conflict, it's very much a, how do we navigate? It's the tactics of in the moment tension or fighting that might arise. And I love your contextualization of conflict always being a, a collaboration, like a, a missed opportunity, but it's an opportunity to collaborate at its very core. Yep. And I'm curious, outside of those moments of conflict, what are some of the other things that couples do to collaborate, to build, to create together? What are the systems that we can utilize where the relationship as an entity becomes a vehicle for kind of collective growth, healing, and beautiful things in the world? And what are the systems that we put in place to really amplify that aspect of relationship? Well, it comes from a mindset. Um, the mindset that gives birth to collaboration or effective collaboration is the deep belief that you and your partner have different superpowers and neither one is a net better set of superpowers than the other. So Eben, my husband says, it's kind of like one partner has one eye can see in the dark and the other partner has an eye that can see in the light. And we need both eyes to be able to live 24 seven in a complex environment. And so the mindset of my partner is half of the genius of this relationship, like two hemispheres in the brain. We need both. If you try to make a decision with just the left or the right hemisphere, it'll never be as good as if you get the combination. And so the idea that really important decisions and projects that either partner is doing will only be benefited by getting the genius of your other half to weigh in realizing that makes you much more open to having those conversations. A lot of times we're just like, I just want to do it by myself. It'll go faster. We'll have less drama. You will have less drama. It will go faster, but it'll never be as good as it could have been. And so I don't collaborate with my husband on every time I order groceries and every little thing I buy on Amazon, but anything big and important that is going to impact our family or our lives, I invite his collaboration begrudgingly. I don't want it because I know he's going to push back and he's going to have different values and we're going to have to have a kerfuffle probably three to four times. But if it's important, I know it's never going to be as good enough. It's never going to be as good as it could be as if I had his genius because he has values and insights that I just can't even fathom. So let's make it, we, let's make it real for you and Evan. Yeah. What, what is the genius that you bring to your relationship and what is the genius that he brings to the relationship and how do they meet to make it? Really practical yeah, so for Evan the Evan is a pragmatist. He wants to get something done. If he wants to write a letter to some employee, can we do the thing, thing, thing? And he's very crisp and, sh and sh uh, ruthless kind of, you know, here's the thing. And I'm like, okay, so they're going to do the thing. Their likelihood and propensity to want to do the thing is completely dependent on the vibe that they feel when the email comes in. So just five minutes extra energy to to connect with their heart, to thank them for what they're doing, to, to be heart open and heart conscious because it's a human being, not a robot. And put that in alongside the here's what we need. You're just going to have the ROI, the five-minute investment to word it in a way that is compelling and inspiring to them is so worth it in the moment and in the long run. So I'm always standing for 
tracking the impact on what you're doing and saying emotionally on people in the space. And he's, what he brings is a precision and a clarity. Because before I met Eben, a request email would have two paragraphs of packaging and I love you and how are you? And then like buried at the bottom, if they have time to get to is the request. And then they feel like I've wasted their time because they have to read through this big, long blurby thing. And he was like, high status people don't have time for this shit. They just want to request, you know, thank you at the end. And I was like, okay, okay. And so I've learned to become more precise and specific and not shuttering up my discomfort for getting approval (laughs) and be less approval seeking and, and more seeing the person as strong and powerful and can handle a request. And I've taught him to be more sensitive where he might be more pragmatic. So that's one way in which we have collaborated. Cool. Yeah. I mean, in our parenting, but also our letters, like he's, he's had to have conversations with his mom or his colleagues or his employees that if he had had them without talking to me, it very much would not have gone as well as, as it had. Yeah. And, and the same for me. And when it comes to, ident- I'm curious if you explicitly articulate these zones of genius, like if there actually are any sort of like documentation of values and genius and like anything that you explicitly write down, you know, to, to make something more real of like, you know, what are the guiding principles of relationships or anything like that? Well, we created a lot of curriculum together about how to support relationships. So we've written down a lot of our ideas in a program called the Love Dojo, which you've gone through. Um, we've also coded, yeah. Yeah, well, no, no, I was just saying, yeah, that that was an experience like I'm kind of almost alluding to it right now. It's I think that there were some things that were codified in there when it comes to values and genius and bringing more clarity to it. So if you were to speak to that, like what what are the most helpful things to get clear on almost in like writing them down in a way yeah. to become clear? I mean, literally having couples write down their top values separately and really look at, give them a list of values to choose from. A lot of people don't even know what their values are. So we have to teach them how to reverse engineer what are the values that are governing all their money spent, time spent, how they, where they direct their attention. Your values are like the internal skeleton governing your entire life, but it's invisible to you, like your skeleton. And so we usually take them through a process of getting clear on what their values are by looking at their life and their behavior and where they spend time and writing them down separately and then bringing them together to share what their top values are and then we often have the couple name their relationship as it a new entity. Like if your if your relationship could be named something, what would it want to be named? And then let's figure out what are the values of this relationship. And when you're ever in a conflict or a confusion or a conundrum, you appeal to the values of the relationship entity, which is the combined values of both partners. Because there's going to be some overlap in values and some not, and each person's going to fight for the most important value to be in the relationship. So once they tussle it out at the values level and they create a set of three to five values that the relationship is run by, then when they're in a situation where they're they're not sure what to do, they can appeal to those values and go, what action can we take that would align most with the relationship values, which is a hybridization and distillation of each person's values combined. That's very useful. And so that's a process we take people through. Um, people's vows. I mean, I've helped a lot of people write their vows. Their vows should be a summarization 
of the relationship's values and what they're committing to be guided by when things get rough. Yeah. And there's the the quote that we're not what we do. We are what we do consistently. And so if we're going to relate to the entity as its own thing, then I think that in many ways, like the relationship is not what we do, but what we do consistently. And how do you, how do you think about habits and patterned behavior in relationship and rituals? And what have you seen practically as some of the most important or valuable that couples can institute? Yeah. So the distinction you're making is one-off experiences or behaviors versus systematized patterns of behavior across time, across the relationship. Because we can handle if someone was late for a dinner date once, but if our partner is always late, that's when we really get triggered. We can all handle one-off situations. What we get frustrated with is consistent, repeated, sustained, systematized behaviors that you find suboptimal. And so- and also on the positive side, not just like trying to eliminate like pattern negative, but also like how do we reinforce the things that are important, you know, whether it's like quarterly, like love dates or different things that you've seen couples do with success. Yeah. And so putting in ritualized, conscious, systematized habits that serve and nourish the relationship is basically all I'm, you know, that's what I'm trying to train the couples in. The, if we go straight to what are the great habits that help couples thrive? One that I've seen that kind of sounds um, cliched and maybe like oh, boring grown-up stuff, like every week have a re- regular date night that is always the same day. It, every Monday is our date night. Come hell or high water, and we've said to everyone, Mondays are our date night. We say to each other, this is the most important thing in our calendar because if our relationship isn't tight, our daughter struggles, the whole system collapses. and we just commit. Now it feels like it's not spontaneous and it's not in, in, improvised in the moment. And when you get into a busy life and you have a family, like you need to structure and systematize time together. And so I highly recommend date night. I highly recommend um, weekly at least one session, the purpose of which is to give each other feedback upon what's really working in the relationship what you're feeling great about, what's really working, and to offer, um, to ask what would make it even better. So it's not complaining. It's asking your partner, hey, here's what I'm really enjoying. Here's what's working really well for me. What would make it even better is if, and then you invite them into that possibility. And those weekly times that are separate than date night, I don't want date night to be like, oh, let's have a family meeting. You keep the sacred and the secular separate. Hmm. don't mix them up. You're not in the middle of sex going, did you remember the dentist appointment? You, you got to keep all <laughs> that separate. So, okay, so date we, weekly yeah. relationship meetings, sex, you got to be having sexual connection. And this is a really touchy subject. Um, you know, I do reels about this and I get all kinds of different responses, but the relationship is an entity. And one of the main foods that nourish it, is physical touch, affection, sexual connection. If you're not regularly feeding the baby with physical connection, it will starve and it'll show up in a lot of conflict. And a lot of time people don't have sex because they're holding a grudge or they want to prove a point and punish. 
or they don't even realize that they're doing that, but they're just withholding sex. Whoever's withholding sex, I want to say you're probably damaging the relationship. And if there's a reason you're withholding sex, like you're frustrated, angry, disappointed about something, bring that up separately, handle that, resolve it, but don't try to use sex to resolve an issue in another area. Yeah? So you got to keep feeding the baby whether you feel like it or not. And the relationship is a baby. So that's another ritual. Because the the way that people are going to refer to that is scheduling sex, right? That's the date. That's that's the callback that we consider. It's like, is it okay to schedule sex? Yeah. And is that? You should definitely schedule sex. It should be part of the date night. And I recommend that you change back and forth, alternate. If this week you created the date night or led it, like sometimes couples don't, you know, they're afraid to lead the sexual connection. If you led it last time, let your partner know that whoever led the sex last time, the other partner has to lead the next time so that nobody's constantly being forced to always lead and worry about being rejected. And, and also when you schedule sex and you know it's date night, you can't weasel out of it. It's like, let's do whatever we need to do and have all the conversations we need to have so that when it's date night, we're ready to go. And so I think that where this bleeds into for me is really when I think about agreements and formalizing the structure expectations of the relationship, right? So if we're making a date night, then we're making an agreement. Both of us are opting into this. If we're saying like we're having sex at least twice a week or whatever that might be, this is something that's important to both of us. I'm curious, how do you think about setting agreements and like really building the architecture of what expectations are, what responsibilities are in a healthy way that you know, counts for people breaking agreements, which is inevitable in partnership. And like, so how do you, how do you set great agreements and build the architecture through that to, to create a healthy relationship? Well, I think the word agreement has to be worked through with the couple to, so that they start to see that an agreement is a promise to us. It's a promise you make to the relationship. And we think the agreement is for one person or the other. Oh, you agreed to do this for me. I agreed to do that for you. I don't trust those agreements. I trust agreements that are made in service of nourishing the relationship. And everyone's needs have to get sufficiently met so that the relationship units are healthy. And so once you get that an agreement is a commitment to the relationship. And so when you break an agreement, it's not about shaming yourself. I'm so bad and wrong. It's I've broken a promise to our relationship. So what can I do to repair it? And what can I put in place to rectify any heartbreak that may have arose out of that, any cost to the relationship? Like It's kind of like if I'm going to – if I can't make a client appointment, I have to break an agreement. I often do something to compensate. Like I might reduce the price or I might give them an extra half an hour. I'm – I understand that I've inconvenienced the system and that I want to offweigh that with an extra support and offer. So if I break an agreement with my daughter, the other day I did something and she was like, oh, I didn't like when you did this thing. And I, I took responsibility and I apologized. And I said, is there anything I can do that would be meaningful for you hmm. to repair that even more, to let you know that I'm really committed to not doing that again? And I know it cost you, so I want to do something that repays it back not as an obligation, but as a way to show that it matters. And 
that willingness to clean up, like what would it take for you to feel that this broken agreement was repaired and really inquiring about that and then being willing to do it. I've noticed that partners don't ask, oh, I need you to buy me a present every day. They just say something, one small thing that they would love. And then it makes it kosher in their mind. The broken agreement ended up in a win. And if you're just looking at historical data of all the people that you work with, are there agreements that you find couples just across the board should have to be successful? Yeah. One is don't threaten the relationship, no matter how angry, how in a fight. Um, I don't trust when any couple is fighting and they're like, I don't think this relationship is working. I want out. I want divorce. I, I, I think it's very cute. But I think of it as like my daughter saying, I'm running away with my Dora the Explorer backpack when she's six years old like because she didn't get whatever she wants at night. I think it's sweet, but I don't buy it. And I find it very, I find it um, short-sighted and naive to use a nuclear weapon. In romance, the nuclear weapon is breakup, threat to breakup. Anything like that is nuclear. Why Why would you go straight to a nuclear weapon? If your neighbor borrows your lawnmower and doesn't give it back, you don't nuke their house. You knock on the door. You might write a letter. You might call the police. You're not going to nuke them. So this going from zero to nuclear is just bizarre to me. So I would banish all threats of breaking up completely from a triggered state. If you are not right for this partnership, that truth will court you when everything's calm, when everything's good, when you're laughing with them on a Sunday afternoon, there'll be a low level hum of, I love them. I want what's best for them. And they're not the right person for me. It's much better to break up from a place of love and groundedness and connection. It's more trustable. It'll work better. And it conserves the dignity and the self-esteem of both you, the other person and the relationship at large. So I don't trust breakups in a fight. That's one agreement I would, I make my couples make. Um, let's see other agreements. You know, if there's a bid for a sexual connection, yeah. like say a partner makes a bid for a sexual connection. Yeah. I like the idea of like, you have 24 hours. If you can't then to respond in kind and to answer it, either bid back, pick up on it, let them know, wow, I'm really still in pain from the surgery. Can we bookmark it to next week? You can do all that, but to acknowledge it and recognize, don't leave the bid unresponded to. Can you say more about the bid and a bid for affection? Because I love that framing and just the awareness that brings to what our partners are doing. Yeah, I think this is Gottman that came up with this idea. Pretty, okay. I think it was about bids. Basically, most interactions between people in love are implicit or explicit bids for attention, affection, admiration. Like, how do I look in this dress, honey, is a bid for affection and affirmation. Hey, look outside. There's a bird on the tree is a bid for shared joy or reality, or maybe a bid for attention. If you start, I think the biggest indicator of relational success is for couples who track and respond to each other's bids. It's the couples where he says, hey, look at the window, there's a bird, and the wife is busy reading the newspaper and never looks. Not responding to your partner's bids indicates a low-level disconnect that will eventually result, you know, turn into 
a dead relationship. Either they break up or they're still together, but it's dead. Both are horrible. So not horrible, but you know, if you want to be with the person, it's suboptimal. Sure. So I think being attuned to bids and, and when your partner says something that doesn't make sense to you and you're not sure why they're asking, it's probably a bid for something. Yeah. And to, to learn to decode the bids. Um, I think as a, a bidder, it's much better when you say the thing you need. Like I've taught my daughter to say, I need attention right now because she would do all these wonky things like poke me and dangle a baby clothes in front of my face. And I don't know, she would be doing all these things. And if she just says, mom, I need attention, then I get clarity. Now I've learned to decode that all these little dancey things are actually bids for attention. And I try to respond to them, but both parts need to be in place. Be more explicit yeah. with your bids and try to read between the lines when your partner is bidding. Yeah. And so a lot of the things that I've asked you about here have been about the interpersonal aspect of building a healthy relationship from conflict to collaboration, to growth, to agreements, to values. And so I'm curious if towards the end of this interview, I'd like to shift more to the intrapersonal aspect of building a healthy yeah. relationship. And so if you were to say more about that is when it comes to our relationship with self, what is the most important, what are the most important things that we should no, not that we can't, that we can be focusing yeah. on to contribute and build a healthy relationship? Well, most of a relationship happens before you even open your mouth to speak to your partner. It's happening all in here. And so teaching students and clients to revere the safety in their nervous system and to get that it's their responsibility to maintain and create safety for their nervous system is 80% of the work. You, you see, when you fall in love with someone, you port over all of your attachment wounds, the good, the bad, the ugly, from your original attachment figure to your romantic partner. Everybody says you marry your mother. Well, you marry, you pick someone who um, your nervous system codes as attachment figure. You go, this is my girlfriend. This is my husband. You, you, you say that consciously, but your nervous system codes them as the person I go to to make me feel safe and rescue me from all the scary things. That's what your nervous system thinks because that's what you did with mom and dad when you were a little kid. Now, you don't tell your partner this. You don't even know you're doing this, but you just get so angry and upset when you're triggered and they don't do the thing that would make you feel safe. You're aghast. You're like, they're not loving me. But what you don't realize is the fact that you need someone else to do something to make you feel safe, which is totally appropriate for a four-year-old, not for a 34-year-old, is totally eluding you. And so a lot of what I'm doing with my clients is helping them see that they're unwittingly treating their partner as if their partner owes them a behavior to make them feel safe. And I totally get why they think they deserve it and why they're indignant that they're not getting it because they did deserve it from their parents and their family of origin when they were four. They did deserve someone attuning and taking care of them and regulating them and they didn't get it. And because they didn't get it in the original context, they feel entitled to it in their romantic relationship. And so I totally understand why they have that stance. And it's my job to lovingly wake them up to, okay, let me teach you how to create safety in your nervous system without needing anyone else to do anything because then you're powerful. And so I have to enroll them in that and teach them that. 
So that's a, an inner game move that has to get mastered. You see, dysregulation, which means I'm overwhelmed, angry, sad, frazzled, attacking, shaming, whatever. When you're dysregulated, your nervous system is dysregulated, it's really time travel. You've time traveled from the present moment as an adult into a young, regressed child version of yourself that was wounded. And your partner's talking to you and they think they're talking to a grown-up, but they're actually talking to a young, regressed child. So self-regulation is the technology you use to time travel back to the present moment into your adult self, where you have access to adults' tools and resources. See, when you have regressed to your younger self, all you have access to is your four-year-old files. You don't, you don't remember any of your 35-year-old files because you think you're four inside. So teaching self-regulation, which is basically time travel, back to the present moment, um, for, ter, um, having my students or clients realize, do you want to get angry and shudder your grumble out into the partnership or do you want a behavior change? Which one? Because you're never going to get both. So you got to pick. Can you, can you can you say that one one more time? I think it's really poignant. Yeah. Do you want to um, shudder your upset, grumble, frustration onto the other person, which is totally valid. It's a thing people do. Or do you want a behavior change? Because I think there's a delusion that you can get both. You never get both. You get one or the other. And at some point, you're tired of grumbling. You're tired of frustrating out. And you're just like, Universe, Annie, somebody, just tell me what to do, what to say so I can get the behavior change. And that's when we can get more strategic and go from WTF to MLK and find better ways to inspire and enroll your partner into a new behavior that's matched to their values. So that um, I think it's like just getting most of the time you're grumbling frustrated is because you're wanting the other person to regulate you because you don't know how. And if you know how, then you are the leader of the relationship. The leader of any system is the one that's the most grounded, sane, and flexible. And if you're not that person, you're not leading the system. Now you're at the mercy of where they lead it. So I just remind people how to get their power back and not be at the mercy of someone else to make them feel safe. Um, in terms of like other things on the inside, well, maybe if, I, if I'm curious about bringing it back to where we started, which is on love and self-love. And how do you think about that? Well, I see self-regulation as an extremely high form of self-love. It's basically what's underneath self-regulation is this belief. My nervous system, feeling safe and calm and grounded is the most important thing in the universe to me. And most people don't believe that or even realize that. And it's always a shock when I tell someone that. Your nervous system feeling safe should be what you guard with your life. And you need to create tools and structures and surround yourself in environmental conditions that help you feel safe. Now, um, if you're in a situation, like, you know, let me see how to, I, I want to also say feeling safe is important, but learning to cope with an intense, you know, the world is also important. So, one way to make yourself feel safe is by hiding away in a corner and never being in a relationship and not talking to anyone. But if you actually want to have a life and be in a relationship, you want to learn how to make yourself feel safe in the context of uncomfortable feelings, jealousy, shame, anger, and be able to be with the feeling 
while you're taking care of yourself, not running from the feeling, right? So um, self-love, I said I love you, starts with I. So being able to say I is really important. So a lot of uh, people that I coach, I'm helping them learn to stand up for their needs and their wants, articulate their truth, um, not just be attuned to everybody else. So selfing is really important to cultivate as a skill. If you don't have a strong sense of self, you will not be able to have a healthy, successful relationship. If yeah. you have a great sense of self, but you can't tune into other people's needs and wants, you won't have healthy relationships. So you need to develop savvy in both of those. Um, self-love. It's so interesting. I mean, it's those... such a cliched. It's such a cliche to say you have to love yourself. Um, the way I want to say it is you have to deeply honor your own safety, your own growth, your own esteem, and your own dignity. And you need to stand for it. And in any circumstance where it's not being honored, you need to stand for it being honored in a way that does not reduce the dignity and the self-esteem of the other person. And that's a dance. And so that's what I teach people how to do. Yeah. And so we spend a lot of time being explicitly prescriptive because I've asked you to be, and I'm curious if we were to move forward with something more in the line of exploration. And for someone who's listening to this, whether they're in partnership, they'd like to be, what do you think, actually let's focus on someone who's in partnership, but what do you think are the most valuable questions that people can be asking themselves to explore the potential, the possibilities, the greatest needs, like what are the best questions that people can ask themselves about their relationship? Yeah. An edgy question that takes a lot of courage, but it would be highly useful is to ask, how am I, not if I am, how am I co-creating this dance that I'm frustrated with, with my partner? that I'm complaining about, that I wish was different. How am I wittingly or unwittingly collaborating with, co-creating, participating in creating this thing that I think's wrong or suboptimal? We always see how our partner is creating it. We can describe that very clearly. But what isn't obvious is how we are co-creating it. And what I realized is every single thing my partner is doing that drives me crazy, everything, I am co-creating it. And when I look deeply, I always find it. And it might not be in the moment. It might not be like, oh, my partner came in and grumbled at me. And what did I do? I was just sitting here reading my internet, my mail. But what I, many, many years I have allowed them to barge in in the middle of my workday. I've trained them. It's okay for them to come and share an upset. There is ways in which you've enabled and trained and tolerated your partner doing it. And so now they think they can just do it. And so the new move is to train them into a new behavior. So it's how am I co-creating the suboptimal circumstances in my romantic life? And dig until you find it. Because anything shy of that is a cop-out. That's a great one. How am I contributing to the problem I'm identifying? What else? And then for another question might be, what is the payoff I get from keeping the thing I'm complaining about in place? So we think we're trying to get rid of the thing that we don't like. But if it's happening for more than three months in your relationship, some part of you likes it. Some part of you doesn't want it to change. I've seen it so many times with couples where 
he's complaining that she's always angry. She's always angry. And then she works on her anger and she takes ayahuasca and she does courses and she stops being angry. And then he can't hang. He's like trying to get her angry again, trying to get the anger back that he wanted to get rid of. I've seen it so many times. So the question I want people to ask is, it's it's the standard payoff question. What's the payoff I'm getting from the status quo? But the way I would phrase it is, um, what would I have to give up if the person actually changed in the way I'm asking them to change? How could it cost me? How could it cause a problem? And to start looking at that, because until you shift that, your partner isn't actually going to be able to change because they're part of a system. And so that's a question I would ask, you know, the, the way I say it in my coaching sessions is what's something you really value in your life right now that you think you might have to give up if you got the outcome that you really want? Mm, that's and a great there's way always to an it. answer. An, there's always an answer there. And then for singles, people who aren't in relationship, what I'd really have you inquire is how are you, say you're a man looking for a female soulmate. How are you treating every woman you meet? Are you treating every woman you meet, 80-year-old lady at the bakery, 16-year-old kid at the Starbucks, cute girl at the cafe, all shapes, all ages, each one is an avatar of the divine feminine. And each one is interacting with you and is either feeling like you've acknowledged the goddess in them or not. And if you can connect with a woman of any age, whether you are attracted to them or not, and make them feel like the goddess that they are, you will be honing your readiness to find your soulmate. So how do you treat every woman? Not just the cute one, not just the one you want to date, every woman. Imagine every woman you interact with is going home to send an email to your future soulmate and tell her whether you're ready or not. So that's one for, for men, but also for women. How do you treat every man you meet? Every man, old guy, young guy, every man. If you treat every man as if they're an avatar, of your soulmate, of the divine masculine, and you're treating them with the dignity you would want someone to treat your son with, then you will be broadcasting the kind of emotional sophistication that will call in the right man for you because every man will feel edified in your presence. And a lot of women don't realize we do not edify men in our presence. And that's why it's hard for them to connect to us. And that's why we haven't found our soulmate. So that's an inquiry or a hack I would give single people. I love these. And so I want to ask you one more question and it's open-ended and I want you to take as much time as you feel called to take with it. But it's, if at the end of your career, you get to broadcast one message to every couple who's ever sought couples counseling, a coach to help them to cultivate more love and inspiring relationship, if you had one message that you could broadcast to all of those couples and you knew that they would actually get whatever it was that you offered, what would you want them to know? You know, the phrase that came up, which <laughs> I was like, I can't say that because it's controversial, but well, before say I say it, it I'll, before I say it, I'll share say a it. quote from Byron Katie that allows me to say it more freely. So Byron Katie said, you can love someone with all your heart and never want to see them again for the rest of your life. 
And I was like, boom, Byron Katie nailed it. Like, even if you don't want to see someone for the rest of your life, you can still hold love for them and keep yourself, you know, protected away, you know, and contextualized. So the thing I would broadcast to all humans, if I knew it would land and they would absorb it fully, yeah. it would be, there is no circumstance under which it's appropriate to close your heart. Hmm. There is no circumstance under which it's appropriate to close your heart. Close your heart to who? Well, it's always to yourself first because it's your heart. And then, so that's a cost. And when you close your heart to someone else, you don't have access to the best way to shift the dance, upgrade the dance, get yourself out of a situation that's suboptimal. You know, we know that's obvious for people you love, but what if someone's attacking you? What if someone's trying to screw you over? Like, do you open your heart there? Yeah. When your heart's open, your creativity and your intelligence is online with your intellect. And if you need to find a creative way to get out of a situation, having your heart open is always going to be better than having your heart closed. So I can't think of any circumstance under which it's appropriate to close your heart. And the reason why this is powerful is because you'll start to notice that in your life and in your relationships, things go wrong always from the first moment you close your heart because you squished yourself out of the communion with all that is. You've ungodded yourself. You disconnected from the vast ocean of consciousness and now you're alone and you can never do as much alone as you can when you're part of the whole ocean right? Every wave is part of the ocean and a wave. And when you need to draw on strength, you want to feel that you're part of the ocean. And so keep your heart open as much as you can and learn new ways to keep it open when it most wants to close. Hmm. Well, hearing that and spending our time together, my heart is open and <laughs> I'm deeply grateful for you and the incredible impact that you've had on my life in my relationships now and uh in the lives of so many people that i care about and I, I truly do believe that you are the best in the world at what you do and it's been an honor to share some time with you here today and for anyone who's listening to this who's curious about your work your writing your coaching uh what is the best place for them to find out more about who annie lala is and what you do yeah i mean i'm online i'm on the internet, my website is AnnieLala.com, A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A-L-A-L-L-A.com. It'll be under in the, in the show notes. And my Instagram, I do reels every week. I do crazy little videos. So that's at Lalabird, L-A-L-L-A-B-I-R-D. And yeah, I, I teach, I coach. I actually teach relationship coaches now. I've started a new school called Heart Coach. So if you're curious about that, come on in, join my tribe, and I'll keep you apprised. Thank you, Annie Lala. You are the best. And I love this conversation. Yay. <laughs> See you soon. Team love. Team love. Team love, baby. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Take care, sweetie.